the Pediatric Lounge, a podcast taking you behind the door of the Physician's Lounge to get a deeper insight into just what docs are talking about today. From the clinically profound to the wonderfully routine and everything in between. Well, hello again and welcome to the Pediatric Lounge. This is your host, Dr. Herb Bravo, and with me is Dr. George Rogo from Long Island, New York. We have the pleasure of having one more time our good friend, Dr. Eric Bricker, who knows everything about medical financing and then some, to the show. As usual, this is a long episode, so we're going to split it up into three episodes, each one lasting about 20 minutes. I hope you enjoy your show, and here's the first episode on private equity, or what I call short-term capital. Morning, George. It's Tuesday morning. We're ready to record another podcast. Yes, it's Tuesday morning. Today, we're going to have, for the second time, the famous Dr. Eric Bricker join us on the podcast. And we're going to be talking about private equity and healthcare and young physicians and should it be allowed in healthcare to begin with and you know the pros and the cons from a physician's point of view. Welcome back, Eric. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. You guys do a great job with your podcast. I really enjoyed our last conversation. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. In the tech world, VC rules, and they buy companies without margins, like Amazon had no margins for a long time, Uber, Meta, which is Facebook, and then they hope to turn a profit. What are they hoping to do with this strategy, Eric? Yeah, so with the private equity acquisition of physician practices, the private equity thesis is that they they already acquire or they acquire businesses that are already profitable. So typically, whether it's a, a physician practice or some other investment they're making, one of the differences between something that's venture back versus private equity back is profitability of the company. And part of the reason for that is that private equity is just a big a fancy term, a more modern term for what in the 1980s was referred to as this LBOs, leverage buyout companies. And LBOs use leverage, i.e. debt. And the only way you can get to put a whole bunch of debt on a company is if they're profitable, because the bank is going to need to have some sort of you know rationale. For, so venture-backed companies can't really raise debt because they don't have any profitability, but private equity firms will sort of juice their returns by putting a whole bunch of debt on the company. That's typically sort of what they're doing. The original thesis for private equity position of physician practices was to have to work with physician groups that were specifically, and this is before the No Surprises Act, that were specifically out of network so that they could charge a very high out of network rate. And so this was the ER physicians, the radiologists, the anesthesiologists, the pathologists. Those were sort of the main target of private equity firms because they would either takes them out of network or they would threaten the insurance carrier be like, look, if you don't give us much higher reimbursement, we're just going to go out and and before the No Surprise Act, then they could just, you know, they could receive, you know, hundreds or even thousands of dollars for an E&M code where, you know, your typical pediatrician might be getting 80 bucks for an E&M code. And this is where you were getting our physicians that were getting thousands of dollars for an E&M code. And the, the private equity firm would pay the physicians on salary and then they would, so they would increase the top line by increasing the reimbursement per CPT code. And then they would put the physicians on salary. So they sort of had a fixed cost for their labor. And then the private equity firm would keep the difference. But I'll, before I get too long-winded, I'll just stop. So venture capital is different, right? Venture capital is like a day trader or a gambler. 
Well, right. venture tends to be for much earlier stage companies that are not profitable yet. Now, the, the goal is for them to eventually be suitable. Their view is the exit strategy, right? When, they, when you either sell it to someone else or you go to market in an IPO, and then that's where the payout is. That's right. And that, and that holds true for private equity as well. The private equity firm is either going to flip you to another private equity firm or they're going to sell you uh, to what's referred to as a strategic buyer. In other words, like another like, really big company like GE would buy the firm or, or they would take it public. In both venture capital and private equity, they refer to that as quote unquote harvesting because you can think of them as like, you know, growing a garden and then they're like harvesting the tomatoes. And so they sort of harvest the companies in a similar way. They're just growing very different vegetables. So venture capital is growing sort of very tenuous vegetables, whereas the private equity firm is growing sort of much more hardy plants that have already been more well-established. And, and so the venture capitalists have a different mindset. To them, failure is part of the game. So if they buy 10 companies and nine fail, but they make billions on the one that goes to market, they've got a 10 or 20 X return on capital, and they're okay with that, right? That's right, which is why a lot of your capital companies are, are really big into incredibly high growth businesses, which tend to be things like salt. And so, you know, buying physician practices is not really a venture capital game. It's really a private equity game because the, the way that the, the, the numbers work on the private equity side, private equity firm doesn't need to have a sort of monumental rapid growth of Google per se. In order to make the economics work, that you know that you know Google was started by or originally funded by a venture capital firm, whereas physician practices don't grow as fast, and, but that's okay, and that's kind of more like the realm. There are some like CityMD and PM Pediatrics, which are very in the earlier stages of startup, and they're doing you know phenomenal growth. They're opening stores all over the country and rapidly, and those are then sold to another company once they get to a certain rate of maturity, right? Yes. To a certain extent, you also have this quote unquote groups like, like One Medical, which you know went public and then was sold to Amazon. That was started by venture capitalists, but that's a little different. That's starting a physician practice de novo from the ground up, as opposed to you know acquiring a whole bunch of physician practices. That that process of acquiring a whole bunch of businesses, putting them into one umbrella. It's referred to as a roll-up strategy, and a roll-up strategy by private equity firms in lots of industries, where you take lots of little, you know, bomb and pop companies and put them together under one big company, and then sell that one big company. That sort of roll-up strategy is sort of very well established. Yeah, but in a physician group, what are they buying? The exam tables, the stools, the computers, the stethoscopes. What are they buying? Revenue. And Great question. What they're what they're buying with any business, they're they're buying the the revenue stream and the profit stream. Okay. So, piece of a physician practice, they're buying the revenue stream from the obviously professional fees from the from that, and then to any any facility fees that they might get, or you know they might have in house lab, they might have in house imaging, they might have the cardiology practice, they might do like the cardiograms, but have if the physician practice is a partial owner in an inventory surgery center or in the GI group. They might be a partial owner in a, an endoscopy center. And so there's revenue coming in, facility fees for that well, but it's the revenue. But the revenue is tied directly to the physician. If Correct. the physician is not there, the patients are not there. Hence, the revenue dries up, right? Well, That's right. 
instead of buying, instead of, you know, so like if they're buying, if you're buying a software business, you're literally buying the code of the software. And in this case, you're literally buying the position themselves. There's a lot of games that are played in this, in this industry. So right now, PE is very focused on acquiring dry cleaners. They're aggregating them. They're very small, mom and pop. They can buy equipment cheaper, run the payroll cheaper, and then put them all together and then eventually put them to market, you know, and make a big profit. One of the examples, I don't know if you remember, but Columbia HCA hospital chain, that was at one point public. And then they wanted to restructure it. And so they went private again. And during the process of being private, the private equity partners loaded it up with huge amounts of debt and gave themselves special dividends to basically out of the debt against the earnings of the hospital, they were able to borrow money against that uh, revenue stream, give themselves a special dividend. So they, they took out their original investment and then they flip it back into an IPO into the market with the debt. And they wash their hands and they walk away with money. Yep. That's one one example of how private equity can be dangerous. Oh, yeah. Because they will load you up, leave you with a bunch of debt you didn't have. Right. The other, the KKR is one of the big ones with NVIDIA and Health, I think it is. And all of these are now finding themselves in trouble because of the new laws. They can't just charge what they want. Now they have to, like everybody else, come to terms with the hospital and come to terms with the insurance payers. They also have a problem with culture, right? These firms are not into relationships. They're not into building long-term legacy companies. They are into making money and flipping companies. Uh, And that's all they care about. You know, if I can make money by selling this company or in a different kind of like Carl Icahn, by selling the pieces of this company yep. into little bits and pieces and destroying the, the company itself. But, you know, there's, there's more money breaking it up. And so that's better for the shareholders. So that's what we'll do. Seems to me that there's a total clash of cultures. When you see physicians, apart from the anesthesiologists and the neonatologists, the ER physician, which are not really, and the radiologist, not really relationship-based. You know, they see you once and never see you again, and they're right. fine. But most other physicians, after the first or second practice, they go into kind of a marriage. They're in the same practice for 30 years and in the same community, and they're seeing the same people. And so most physicians are in the relationship business and in a long-term business, sort of like banking. You know, when you're, you're, when you're lending people money for their house in a 30-year note, that's a long-term relationship. That's not a six-month or two-year relationship. And so it seems just from looking from afar that when your goal is to make money and you're not interested in the relationship and timing is not important to you, that's kind of antithetical to what a bank and a physician practice does when it's part of a community. Am I getting that wrong? So I would say that the types of physician practices that tend to be bought by private equity firms, they tend to be specialist practices that are much more transaction-driven and not relationship. To your point, so the types of practices that private equity firms acquire now 
are things like orthopedic practices that tend to not have as long-term relationship with patients. It's very transactional related to their surgery. Let's just talk about fee-for-service as the revenue model. So for specialty practices, when private equity firms buy them, they are essentially substantiating and their main source of revenue is fee-for-service. So that is, that's their main driver is the procedure, right? You don't make a lot of money in fee-for-service talking to people. So that's, that's not the main driver. Now, conversely, where private equity firms or investors have invested in primary care is a very different type of relationship, specifically for Medicare Advantage, where the, the primary care practice is being paid a very large capitated sum, like 15 to 18 grand per patient per year, vis-a-vis fee-for-service. So private equity firms, by and large, are not buying primary fee-for-service primary care practices. Historically, that has not been all this, all this sounds like it's just all about the money and nothing about healthcare, really. That's exactly right. It's 100% about the money. The reason is that the way that a private equity fund works is that they have to raise money for the quote-unquote fund from what are referred to as the limited partners or the LPs. And an LP might be a pension fund. An LP might be a, an insurance company. These people that have, you know, an LP might be a university endowment. And they have to diversify their portfolio. Well, they'll have like 60% of their portfolio in bonds, and maybe they'll have 30% of their portfolio in stocks. And then they'll have 10% of their portfolio in other stuff. And other stuff includes private equity investments that they then invest with the private equity firm. And when the private equity firm goes to those limited partners to raise money for their fund, it is all about just the return. I mean, that's literally what it is. They're looking at their portfolio of investments bonds and stocks and commodities and private equity. And they're looking at the variability of the risk and return across that portfolio. That private equity firm could be investing in widgets or makeup or physician practices. That is of no consequence to the limited partners. The limited partners just care about the risk and the return. How is that good for healthcare and humanity as a whole? It's only good to the extent that the financial relationship between improved patient care and the practice making more money are aligned. So if we live in a world where the physician practice can make more money to the detriment of the patient, then that is not good for patients. And I would argue in much of healthcare, there is financial misalignment such that what makes the most money is not in the interest of the patients. The way that financial incentives are exist in healthcare today, all private equity does is put kerosene on the fire of financial misalignment. And the way that I can understand this, if I was a small practice and it was bought by a private equity firm, they would want me to start up coding. So do more 99214s and more, more, more 99215s. Correct. Do more volume, you know. Don't bring that asthmatic once every three months, like the guidelines say, bring him in every month. That, so the, and if you're a proceduralist, then you're financially incentivized to do more procedures. And the outcome of that asthmatic is not important to them. It is how much money am I bringing into, you know, am I meeting their metrics? However, they want to measure work RVUs or, you know, total collections, whatever it is. 
And they probably would also say, forget about taking care of a Medicaid patient. God doesn't pay enough for us to take care of that. You know, that's right. We even put the asthmatic on a better regimen of long acting beta agonist, rescue inhaler, inhaled steroids. And you actually titrated their medication so that you actually didn't make that's good for the patient. It's bad financially for the practice. That's right. That's right. But but I would have to do a little bit so of so there you're there, there you're financially misaligned for the asthmatic. So I'd be a little chicanery, right? So I have to force that parent to come see me once a month to get their uh, their their maintenance medications just so that I can pat the book so that my owners are happy. Yep. And that's, I think, the biggest danger of private equity in primary care. I want to talk a little bit about some recent bank failures in the news because I think it's very important. To me, it highlights the tremendous danger of having private equity or venture capitals or what I call short-term capital as your friend or part, or they're not really your partner, they own you. And Silicon Valley Bank was a darling of these people. And yeah. they grew tremendously. And it's just, it's just mind-boggling, people, mind-boggling. This bank went from like 50 billion in assets to 220 billion in assets just because of the amount of IPOs that were out there. Now, there's many reasons for this failure. And I'm going to let Eric, you know, he's much smarter than me, dice it. But in essence, we had a policy that made no sense that started with Obama and Bernanke of negative interest rates. And so a lot of money went to private equity because that's the only place that they could park the money and get a return on investment. Then for some unknown reason, I don't understand it. We got away with no inflation. Finally, the Biden administration was able to light the fire on inflation by putting, what, $3 trillion into the economy. It was unnecessary. And now the Federal Reserve and Mohammed Al-Aryan said it best. The Fed had been driving under low visibility on a windy road at high speeds. And all of a sudden, when they raised the interest rates, they slammed on the brakes, and now we're seeing the car crash, one after the other, the pileups. And Silicon Valley Bank had over $120 billion in the safest investment you can have, which is U.S. Treasuries. But the PEBC community in California, which was their number one client, got spooked on a Thursday that they weren't going to be able to pay out their bills. And so they all texted each other, and all at once, in one day, they tried to withdraw $45 billion of assets from the bank. And the bank didn't have the cash. And that's the worst example of what can happen to your business if you do business with private equity, the day they sour on you, they will pull everything out and leave. And you won't have a business, even if you have $120 billion in safe assets. Yeah, I think that's called the run on the bank. That's I, a run I on guess, the bank. Yeah, but again, I, I guess these things happen. 
I guess because of communication and internet and posting and news and propaganda and people talking about it. And I mean, it happened back in, when was it? When you had the bank crisis? That was totally different. Same kind of idea, run on banks. But the problem here was that, that they decided they soured on this bank, which is a community bank, which is supposed to be in long-term relationships with the community and the private equity VC funders and all the companies that they had invested in all at once decided this isn't good for us. And they're all out because they're not in the relationship business. Wow. And that's what they can do to your practice if they buy it. Tomorrow they decide I can make more money selling ketamine on the, you know, and now ketamine is legal. I don't need you. And they leave. You're done. Well, I think it's important to, to have an understanding of, and, you, and your listeners might already understand this, is that when a private equity firm buys a practice, they actually need to, to set up a shell management company because of state corporate practice of medicine laws that actually, you know, quote unquote, forbid physicians from working for corporations. And so physicians are allowed to work for other physicians or for hospitals. And so what the private equity firm does is they set up a shell company that is headed by some, you know, random doctor. They find Joe Doctor to be the head of the shell company. And so all the physicians actually work for that shell company. They don't work for their practice anymore. So to Dr. Roku's point, the private equity firm actually owns the stethoscopes and the exam rooms and the spangomanometers on the wall and all that good stuff. But the physicians themselves work for a physician practice that is separate from the actual they used to own. They don't even own it anymore. And then they become employees and their salary. Now, oftentimes those salaries do have productivity bonuses, but the relationship between the physicians and like the employees, like the nurses and the med techs and everything like that, like they don't even, they work for a completely separate company from the physicians. So they used to all work for the same company. They don't work for the same company anymore. Sounds like a whole lot of shenanigans. That's right, Dr. Rogo, a whole bunch of shenanigans. We're going to take a break here. We will be back on Thursday with a second episode. One more on short-term financing for the medical practice. Is it good for physicians or not? Thank you for listening. This has been a production of the Pediatric Lounge. On the show notes, you will find links to our co-host and other important notes as well as a timetable of the topics discussed today. Don't forget to follow us on social media and subscribe to wherever you listen to your podcast. Leave us a great review as it helps us greatly. In the meantime, we will see you next week the pediatric lounge. The conversations are not intended as medical advice and the opinions expressed are solely those of the host and the guest. <laughs>